Oh, I heard you for a sec. Oh, there you are. It's real. Hi. <laughs> How are you? I'm well. Yourself? Very good. Listen, my camera doesn't work, so we'll have to do it. Well, that's not fair. And how's the audio for you now? It's great. Okay, great. Hi, I'm Cyril, your host. And welcome to my podcast that I called, I Really Want to Do This. In this podcast, I interview guests from all walks of life and try to understand the various ways that different types of people with different backgrounds and experiences succeed in achieving their goals in their very own ways. Think of the past 10 years in your own life. Have you had a personal goal, an objective, maybe you call it a dream, of doing this one thing? You really want to do that one thing, whatever it may be, but for some reason, you never succeeded in making it actually happen. Well, by showcasing successful achievers and asking them how they did it, I sincerely hope that this podcast will give you some ideas and maybe answers on where to start, how to proceed, in order to actually do that one thing that you really want to do. Hi everyone, today we have a, a great guest and uh, like always I'm going to let him introduce himself by his first name and, and where he lives. I'm David and I live on the west coast of the United States. Thanks David, uh, that's, that's awesome. Uh, full disclosure, we're good friends and uh, that's who I wanted to introduce you for my first podcast. Um, but this is going to be a, a very uh, easy conversation. So David, for the listeners, can you please tell us a little bit of your international exposure? Because I believe having filters and experience overseas uh, really influences the way we think, the way we have culture, we, we see culture and our filters. So can you tell us if you've lived overseas other than the United States and what continents have you traveled before? Yeah, it's, I think that is an important consideration is, is what sort of outside now uh, other world influences we've had. Um, Speaking personally, I my I grew up uh, my first formative years grew up overseas, and I grew up in southern India. Uh, my parents were missionaries, um, and so my older brothers are born in India. My twin sister and I were born in the states when my parents were on sabbatical on the east coast. Um, and but I I spent my first formative years learning it through southern India, and learning the language and the culture of the area as best I could as still being a foreigner. I had no clue. This is so cool. And and after that, you lived in the U.S., I imagine, and, and somewhere else? Or Yeah, I came to the United States. Um, we moved from there, then moved to the west coast of California, uh, which is um, predominantly where I've been. I call it, that's where I've been collecting my mail for the last uh, <laughs> half a century, so to speak. Um, and But I've, I've also traveled quite a bit. And as a result, I think of certainly directly and indirectly inspired by my early experiences and by my parents' influences um, who have really helped inspire and shape my curiosity for the world. Mm -hmm. I have 
travel to, I'll say plus or minus, because um, I remember the, the, but the number that sticks in my head is about 87 countries. Oh, wow. Well, so fantastic. I, I travel myself so much as well. And, and I think in the end, you, be, you're, you become so much richer by seeing the world from different point of view, isn't it? Um, for sure. Yeah. Yep, for sure. So, okay. Last question about introducing yourself. Um, tell me a little bit about um, your personality traits. I know it's a hard one <laughs> to describe oneself, or but your character traits. I'm not interested in 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 what's your job. I want to know mm-hmm. uh, your personality traits and also how maybe your childhood and your family environment was good or bad in, mm-hmm. in the beginning of your life. Yeah, it's a. I often will not ask someone what they do for a living. It, and it does matter to me as well, Cyril, is, is kind of how they view their world and uh, the lens through which they, they see their world. But that's not necessarily by what they're doing at the time. So thank you for asking it in that manner. I am, um, from personality traits, kind of a lot of things percolate up. But I think if I were to distill it down to a few key things, I'd say um, I'm inspired, and I'll, I'll keep using that term inspiration inspired more because it just sort of flows naturally for me, not because I'm forcing it out. But um, my, I am hyper curious. Mm-hmm. And I referenced earlier, you know, my parents and how they sort of informed the way in which I see the world. And partially that was living overseas. So there's just the circumstances of that. But it's also what took them over there. And, and my, um, I'm a super curious person and I will give great credit, particularly to my parents, but when, about how they've, how they shaped that and how they influenced and inspired my curiosity. And, and I think people often look as, look at the word curiosity as sort of this monolithic homogeneous um, word that has a singular definition. And I, and I think of it in, in, in other ways, I think of, you know, for example, and I'll put it in context, which is if my father was uh, very culturally curious Right. And it's part of what took him. He, he he academically studied and learned and desired to know about foreign cultures and peoples and what connected them, what bound them. And part of what that also meant, one of the biggest tendrils is religion. Mm-hmm. So he was um, he had been an academic his entire life. He was raised to become a lawyer, a Midwestern lawyer. He went to Yale undergrad. He went to Harvard Law School. Um, and at, at the tail end of Harvard Law School and being one of the tops in his class, he just said, he came to this recognition, this is not for me. Mm-hmm. I, he could not be, be a lawyer. Now, that kind of leads into perhaps some of the other parts of our conversation. But more importantly, he saw the world intellectually. He studied it, explored it intellectually. He ultimately desired not to be shackled down by a law degree. But instead, he chose then to go on to divinity school. Mm-hmm. and to pursue religion and studying, again, the things that bind people and cultures, religion being one of those. Um, so he inspired my intellectual curiosity, you know, things we want to learn about, read about, study about, etc. probably with a little bit of objectivity. Mm-hmm. My cultural curiosity to learn about people, peoples, uh, foreign cultures, and architecture, and music, and again, the, the other kinds of things, the cultural aspects that, that create context and connection between peoples um he informed my sort of general curiosity about sort of socially understanding people and he later became a 
marriage, family, child counselor and therapist and some other things and ran a postgraduate school for, um, for uh, clinical psychology. My mom, on the other hand, informed my, she was not as much of an academic. She was not the high intellect, but she was curious in her own right. And she was super curious about having experiences and going out and doing things and learning and, and learning about um, physical experiences out in the world. And she didn't let herself get hung up by what she didn't know and didn't know how to do. And that is, so that is super important to me and is an integral part of who I am. She was also very intimately, uh, well, socially curious. She was, in, she could lock into an individual conversation with a person mm -hmm. and could uncover and discover so much about that person in, in such an intimate way, in a sort of in that singular one-on-one -on -one interpersonal way. And so she inspired that in me to learn about people and not just peoples, but an individual person. Mm -hmm. um, and so going back to then the first part of your question, which is, those are the kind of the, the, that sense of curiosity, the desire to learn about people and things and understand how to do things then, which bridges into perhaps later part of our conversation. Those are things that I carry with me and take it into my workplace, take it into the things I pursue, um, into new frontiers and environments of work, um, and also into how I do things avocationally, so outside of my vocations. Love it. I... On my side, I'm, I'm also 100% uh, convinced that the family roots and the family, the childhood that we had is, is so crucial. Um, the reason I'm asking all of these questions is to understand your childhood and family environment where you lived, because I'm trying to understand how you think and how you make objectives happen. Now, if you have those strong um, parents that are pushing you to be inquisitive, pushing you to be you know, that, that's going to determine the way you decide and, and you, you choose to believe things. I think a parent's role and job is to, if we can call it that, is to give their kids opportunities to have certain experiences mm -hmm. and to help model, if in this case, let's say model curiosity to, you know, create opportunities to do certain things, to try and give kids an education, whatever that may mean. Education doesn't have to be formal. I come from a background of very formal educators and educated uh, educated mm -hmm. parents, but it's it can also be informal education, be exposure to certain things in life. Mm -hmm. um, and my mom was a, was a lot about experiences. My dad was a lot about academics, and and those two converged certainly in some of our overseas experiences and adventures. And when I was young, you know, we traveled around the world a couple of times, mm -hmm. um, and we did on a, on a minister's budget, by the way. So my parents, we did not have much money. And that was, that was one of those things was an, an interesting challenge for us growing up. Um, but they modeled a lot for me and for us. And so then how we picked and choose and how we sort of carried that in our, through our lives, um, the little kaleidoscope of sort of experiences uh, as each of us as kids was, was uh, in many ways profoundly different, even though we came from the same experiences sim or similar experiences as kids. So mm -hmm. I think, you know, at some point we can, uh, parents can want to overforce and, you know, over direct um, and offer, you know, what I'd, uh, I'm, a, I'm fond of a term called, you know, it's our job to create handrails. And this is part of, goes back to sort of how I carry things in my life and through work and all that. Um, I'm a, a man of models and frameworks and checklists, but I use them as handrails, not as handcuffs. Right. And, I, it's important, I think, for us to, you know, for parents or for us is to share these experiences 
um, try and model certain things that we, you know, hope someone can get experience from and then get the hell out of the way. Right. <laughs> right. At some point, we got to let go of trying to dictate the outcome of how we want kids, loved ones, friends, partners, um, or even sort of the reverse genetic engineering, which my mom accused me of, which is either trying to influence our parents to do certain things. Uh, <laughs> we've got to get out of the way. We've got to get out of, out of our own way. And we can offer handrails for uh, development and for experiences, um, but we've got to be careful not to turn them into handcuffs, which I think is, is a, is a, can be a pretty crisp line sometimes. Mm-hmm. Let's go down to the, um, the purpose of the podcast. Oh, this podcast, mm-hmm. um, there's a fire. Once somebody decides to really want to do something, there's a fire that starts in the chest, in the mind, and that that creativity, that that possibility is just born in your in your brain. That is, like, what if I do this? How would it be cool? And then it just mm-hmm. grows and grows. And everybody's different. Um, we, we've looked at your background a little bit to see how you were uh, set in life. Other people were different, and, and I'm going to have a lot of different personalities and characters just just so that people can see how everybody can do something depending on on where they are. Now. So a moment in your life where you felt that I really want to do this. Mm-hmm. Now, and the idea is not really what it is. I, I, I really want to see the how, how you decided to do that thing. Was it one day you woke up, I'm going to do this or so why don't you tell us what that show things you, you chose to talk to us about? Yeah, there, I, the thing that percolates up, and there are a number of things that come up, and, and I'll, I'll answer that in a sentence, and then I'll embellish it with story as it's appropriate, or perhaps inappropriate. But the um, the the event was uh, a, a, a what's called an adventure race, um, and so back in the mid '90s, I had in early '90s I'd been doing some ultra running, so I was, I was pretty athletically inclined and. Um, particularly a little bit later in life, but I, uh, I was running a lot. I was cycling. I'd been involved in some triathlons. I'd done some Ironman triathlons and stuff. I wasn't particularly satisfied by there. There were a lot of, yeah. Well, at the time, it'd been considered to be the sort of the penultimate event was Ironman triathlon. But it was also pretty well defined. You could do a, you know, two point four mile swim and a hundred and twelve mile bike and a you know twenty six point two mile run and you just do it in different parts of the world, which is pretty cool and pretty exciting. That was for me wasn't was a, a tremendous outlet and opportunity to do some special things and actually to travel. And the cool thing about Ironman is you could go to different parts of the world. And you could do some really neat. You could do it in some neat places like Japan Ironman or Canada or the Canary oh. Islands or Australia or New Zealand or ultimately you know the Hawaii, which is the World Championships uh, of, of Ironman. But what also didn't satisfy me was just the fact that it still was a little bit too structured because there are so many knowns about it. And I wasn't, it was given the, you know, the specific dimensions, you'd know where the aid stations were. And if you trained properly and did all this, you could kind of pretty much guesstimate what, what time you'd, mm-hmm. with what time you could complete an event. And inevitably there are all kinds of wild cards that came in there. For me, what really inspired me then in the mid nineties, given this athletic background, but sort of where my, my sort of, I call inspirational itch hadn't quite yet been scratched by Ironman was um, this thing called adventure racing. And at the time was, there was a, uh, here in the U S it was the, the inaugural uh, adventure race was called the eco challenge. 
Right. And what adventure racing is, is a multi, typically it's a, and at the time it's a multi-day event. The expedition level races, which we call them then, were seven to 12 days long. They required you to, to cross some remote uh, portion of land in, yeah, in some obscure corner of the world. Mm-hmm. And to do it with, at that time, it was five total teammates and a support crew um, that would you know, resupply at certain points along the way. But to do it, you'd traverse um, four or 500 miles of other, you know, sometimes determined to be hostile wilderness, and you do it on mountain bike and on and or on kayak or rafting and rope work and horseback riding and those kinds of things. A bunch of different disciplines were involved, and that was um, being inspired by seeing literally seeing an ad in Triathlete Magazine at the time when I was over at Hawaii Ironman just after after Ironman. Was that the newness of, of the event or the uncertainty or was yeah. it something? Yeah, it was there. Yeah, a couple things. One was just this ego challenge, which is you know, so called eco challenge, but there's an ego challenge, which was this the call to action ad, which was so you think triathlons are tough. You know, you says in essence, the unwritten okay. sentence was you, you sissy. So there's a little bit of that ego part, but it's mostly the, the newness and partially because there's a lot in there that I didn't know you know uh, of the event but it was there was this instant inspiration there's like oh my gosh i've got to do this Mm -hmm. and it was and there was enough in that ad that inspired my curiosity and my desire that my longing to go do something and what i knew was and there you know this goes back to sort of how i look at things which is um first it's i immediately process my head I'm, i'm i'm an engineer by training not by practice Mm-hmm. Um, but I use frameworks and models to help measure things and to sort of re- apply against my world and life choices. And at that time, the magnetic force that were influencing my decision-making compass were about inspiration and doing things I didn't know, but still using my body as a vehicle to go do these things. But I wanted this opportunity to go see remote stretches of land that otherwise, and, and places and ways in which I couldn't otherwise go and see. And I'd, And to simplify it, and it sounds kind of, you know, cheeky and cheap, but I, I, I want to do cool things in cool places with cool people. I love, and I love not it. in a, I want to go hang out with a bunch of stars. It's like, I want to go experience something really special and, and see it in a way that nobody, that very few people can see it. I want to do that in with, you know, methods, means, vehicles, and in which it would allow me to do so and give me access to, to, to those areas that otherwise I wouldn't have access to and to do it with people that mattered a lot to me and that okay. I would figuratively and or literally risk my life for that that spoke to me really quickly and then I can tell you about sort of where that went from there but that spoke to me yeah so basically you read an ad and that sparks imagination on in your brain mm-hmm. and in your heart and you say wow this is something I'd like to do Now, how about the, the starting phase? Was, were there inherently roadblocks for you to make it happen? Or what was your, did you create a roadmap? Yeah. Keep saying, I'm going to do this, this, this. Yeah, there, there, there are a few ways in which I approach something like that. And so, I'm, and I'm given sort of revisionist history or the ability to reflect back on that moment. I know that one of the things that immediately stood out for me was that I need teammates. Yeah. And, and, and I'll paraphrase David, I think it was David Brower from the Sierra Club of, of old Sierra Club, who was probably paraphrasing somebody else. But he said, if you want to build a tribe of cannibals, you must first find cannibals. <laughs> and 
I thought, you know what? I got to find some teammates. I got to find some cannibals. I was like, hey, you know, and I, you know, with a sharp elbow, I pointed my buddy Greg next to me, Greg Thomas. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll leave the name out of it, Greg. And he said, <laughs> hey, hey, Greg, is this something you'd be psyched about doing? Yeah. And, you know, for, you know, shoveling mouthfuls of pancakes and stuff at um, post Hawaii breakfast, he's like, yeah, I'll do that in, in a non, in a nonplussed way. And I'm like, okay, I've got a cannibal. And, you know, and, and my other girlfriend at the time and, and ultimately became a teammate, but had been a training partner, Terry, I elbowed her and said, Hey, is this something you'd be psyched about supporting? And she was, had been racing professionally, racing triathlons professionally. That was her full-time job. And she said, hell, I'm not going to support it. I'm doing it. I'm like, okay, we got three cannibals. You know, we got two, we got to find two more plus support crew. And turned out there were two other people at the table. There were, we had done some coaching and training because I had been a triathlon coach as well. And there were two people there and said, Hey, would you guys be psyched about supporting this? They're like, okay. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, that's really, it's almost easy. You know? So we had five or seven people that we needed automatically. But yeah, so I think a lot of, or in some events, some things that we want to pursue and regardless of what they are, whether events or not, whether of physical nature or not, we often choose to, or need to share them with someone else. And, and, and so enlist other people, whether it's support people as people are part of it directly with us, but we need to find other cannibals. So, and that, that case, was that immediately knocked down some of the hurdles for me yeah. in the moment. In that case, you, you seem to be the initiator of the fun and the spark. Is that something that you reproduce that you see along your, your life that you've been doing and it's part of the excitement of it? It's like, hey, I'm going to bring you to that amazing place. Yeah, and, and, I, and I am an enlister and I, am an, and, and I can be and, and have been an, a catalyst. I won't call it an inspire, but a catalyst. And, and so part of, part of what matters to me, and I said it about Greg at the time and Terry and the, and the, the, the crew members, Jill and Mark, the support crew, um, What I look for immediately is people who also immediately are willing and able to drop into the desire of doing it. Yeah. Okay. Right. And so, because that automatically knocks down so many hurdles, not yeah. all of them, but a few front end significant ones when you're, when other people are part of something. And, and I look at it the same way for me. And this goes, I'll go back to sort of how I model and frame some of those decision making processes. But I look for the, The people and, and for the people outside myself and inside myself that automatically where it says, I got to do this and I got to figure out a way to do this. Mm -hmm. And everything else is kind of a detail. I need to go through the details. And so this is the, my intellectual, academic, you know, engineering side of things. I'll call it scientific because um, that makes it sound scientific. <laughs> But it's I, I have to pay. So because, because I need to do my gut checks also. But, but first, the gut has to be inspired. Right. So and, I mean, this could be applied to anything, to like a finding partners for a company, a startup, for anything. Yep. That's, hmm. For sure. And so this is where it goes back to the, a little bit of my modeling, which is, and it doesn't need to be really complicated. Um, you know, it matters to me to, there's some things I need to know. You know, what do I need to know? What do I know? What don't I know? What do I need to know versus what I want to know? What do I, using my imagination, because we have to extrapolate on that, which is a, what do I think I don't know that I'm going to be surprised about later on because I thought I kind of knew enough? You know, so it's kind of being willing to live in the unknowns also. But I start with, and I, and I'm, I know I did it at the time for them, and I do it for most of the things I do, sometimes on paper, more often now I do it in my head, but I still often go back to just a basic pen and paper is 
a, a T chart. What are the pros? What are the cons? Keeping it super simple. If I do it, what's this and what's this? And this is me going through the intellectual exercise. Yeah. I, for my own sake, I feel like I need to do that. And I'll go, you know, what's it? What are the costs going to be? What are the time commitments going to be? What are the other things? What are the impacts and influences? What are they going to be? What's the pro side of it? You know, I could and I could do the, have these kinds of wonderful experiences with my partner or with my friends or whatever. Here's a consequence. I'm going to you know neglect some family members or there could be some trade-offs for work or those kinds of things. Or um, there's some financial things that go into the T-chart, et cetera. But it's, it's a simple right. you know, vertical line through a piece of paper and a horizontal pros, cons. And you just write it out and don't try and filter it. You just dump it on there. And then from there then, and, and that's, that can be a satisfactory intellectual exercise. Then I have to push that away. And oh, really? then I go back and I'll just sit and I'll sit and I'll reflect and I'll feel. Because ultimately it still needs to go back to that initial inspiration of the gut. Yeah. Informed by the intellect that says, you know what? Because when it really comes down to it, I really, really wanted to do this. Yeah, and yeah. Th these are why I made my choices. Because the intellect will inspire you only so far or will carry you so far. It's the inspiration. It's the gut that's got to really push you along. And that's when things, when you're really suffering and hurting. Because inevitably that comes up. And when you're scared and when you're strung out and when you've overcommitted yourself in a variety of ways, regardless of whether it's a physical event or whether it's a a business pursuit or whatever, you, you got to remind yourself and you got to, you got to feel that gut, but it still needs to be, um, it, it needs to have the intellectual way in, I think, to mm, make it real. I love it. So what's funny is that I've met a lot of people and they don't have that impartial phase where you say, what's the positive and negative? And then you look at it, you let it breathe. It's either, I call it the yes, but it's whatever you think of. And then you have a yes, but mm -hmm. And you say, well, you know, I'm going to go to India, do that ocean, that race. Yes, but mm -hmm. it's far. And if you're negative, it's going to be yes, but it's far. Yes, but it's uh, expensive. Yes, but I don't have time. But if you're optimistic and you really want to do this, it's going to be yes, but that is going to knock down all the issues. Like, yes, it's far. Yes, but I, I can fly. It's just like 12 hours flight. It's expensive. Yes, but I can save. It's, it's in a year. I can save a little bit, you know. So do you have any of that process or you just say, you just decide it and you say, okay, I'm going to knock one problem after the other. Yeah. I, so I, there are different ways to answer that. Other than say, yes, I have all kinds of then processes because then I start to go, if, once I make the decision to pursue it, then I've got to, then I start to go into the, live into the knowns and the unknowns and, and itemize and list. And, and I'm, and I'm a great list maker, but I don't do, I'm not a list maker for the sake of just going through, an intellectual exercise. I'm a list maker because I think it matters a lot to help prepare oneself for something. Um, I'll, I'll step outside that and I'll, you know, offer a couple other perspectives, which is um, some other things that are sort of come up in models and frameworks and axioms that I've developed for friends of, you know, have come together with friends about, you know, things like axioms of adventuring, which is the, the you know, our, our, and I'll, I'll use it collectively because it never are those things created in a vacuum. Um, but the axioms of adventuring, and this is something my mom inspired when I was younger too, but it's, is axiom number one is you, anything worth doing is worth having fun doing. Mm -hmm. Yes. And we express fun in different ways. We experience it in different ways. Uh, people show it in very, very different ways. But so I've got, so when I, when I'm going through that intellectual exercise, like, okay, am I really going to enjoy this? And that's part of where the gut comes in also. Is this really, am I really going to find, derive great pleasure and benefit from this? Am I going to have, can I have fun doing this? 
Second is, and this goes back to list making and framework and all that. Axiom number two is you don't have to know how to do something in order to begin it. Mm-hmm. And in preparing for Eco Challenge, for example, when that inspiration came about, I knew there were a bunch of things I didn't know. I'd had, I'd had the pleasure of a lot of experiences. My mom exposed us to some different things when we were kids. We didn't have enough money, for example, to go do a bunch of, you know, to learn fully how to sail and to buy a sailboat. But she could give me a sailing lesson. Yeah. And, and we would do that and we'd share that together. So there, you know, or a kayaking, a, a day trip kayaking or, mm-hmm. you know, a camping weekend or a rafting weekend or something like that. So she gave us lots of experiences. Now I was, that didn't mean I was great at any one of those things, but, and I knew for in looking for eco challenge, there's some things I kind of knew, but I knew there's a bunch of stuff I had never done before. Some of the ropes work stuff and some really significant vertical, you know, no, high, scary, you know, cliff climbing and stuff like that. I mean, the, there's a part of the, the learning process where you could say, I'm just going to do it. Or there's another one that is, mm-hmm. okay, how do I acquire those skills? Like for me, yep. the first thing I, I don't know, I'm going to call 20 people that I know could give me part of the answer of how to get that skill. And so I'm relying, do, do you do that? Or do you just say, okay, there's one expert that can tell me and I'm just going to go learn from him or what's your method? Yeah. Yeah, and I could go to specifics or I go to generalities. There, part of it is, so in this case, for Eco Challenge, and I'll use ropes work as one, I had no idea how to do a, a rope stuff. I didn't know how to climb. I didn't know how to, and this, mm-hmm. there were some pretty specific ways of um, ascending and descending ropes. We didn't know the, the, the environment in which we were going to be. We were given some intimations for that, but we had to learn. And one thing I've learned to do is to say, um, I can subordinate my ego and say there are a lot. There are people who know things a lot better than I do. So I'm going to go learn from them. And depends upon the compression of time. If I have to do it quickly, I'm going to go learn from the best. And so in that case, we enlisted a couple of the best climbers, American climbers in the world, uh, who had sharpened their teeth in Patagonia. They ultimately became some of the riggers for Eco Challenge, and so they came on some recommendation. And we flew to uh, to Utah, to, to the high desert, and we trained with them and learned how to ascend and descend and go through some of these same processes. Later, I took that to other, I learned then how to, I was further inspired to go do some big wall climbing and to, um, uh, to go on some major mountaineering expeditions. And then I kind of picked up little experiences and little training sessions along the way. And at some point then started just experience myself because there's some things that w- there are some trails that have not yet been set and you got to go, you got to go forward those yourself. Um, but early I learned from other people. And that was also something that my mom had, had, I think in, had taught us how to do is to go learn from other people um, mm-hmm. and, and be willing to do so. So in that case, for Eco Challenge, I did. And we, there was some canoeing stuff I'd never done before. And so I want to go learn how to canoe and learn how to paddle and learn from a few of the best paddlers in the world and try and, you know, scratch at them and, and get as much information as I could from them. We, in, in this case, for Eco Challenge, we were late in the coming and we were on a waiting list and we only had a few months to get prepared for the event. So we had to accelerate and we didn't have the luxury of lots of time. And so I had to learn from some of the best. And the idea was mm-hmm. I, didn't ha- I, I didn't have to know how to begin it or how to do it in order to begin it. And I could pick up pieces along the way as long as I was willing to sort of do so and, and put little tiles into the mosaic of experiences that helped prepare me as best I thought I could, knowing that, but also being willing to let go of the fact that I wasn't going to be the expert when it came time for the event. You started 
by saying that you had uh, some kind of a vision of how it would happen and you just wanted to have fun. And so that visualization you had of reaching the goal, right? I assume that you, you finished Echo Challenge, but maybe you didn't. And that could be still the feeling, I really want to do this. And that, and that taught you something, but mm -hmm. you'll tell me if, if you finished that. But where, how did you feel at the end? Because the, how you feel when you finish That, that goes to the definition of success, whether you finish or not. So tell me how sure. what you felt matched what you thought you would feel. And, and how did that influence your other decisions after? Yeah, I, I think there, there are multiple layers of, of, of questions embedded in, that, in the way you asked that. So I appreciate the way you asked it. And there's a lot to unpack in there. And I won't mm -hmm. unpack all of it. I'll say we believed that and, and I'm, i'm going to bring the whole team in um, we believe that if we could just finish eco challenge that given the given how long it was given you know the duration the, the difficulty anticipated difficulty all those things that if we could just complete the event that we would likely be competitive as opposed to on the flip side as opposed to trying to go win trying to go be super competitive which so many teams yeah. try and do particularly those that maybe have a little bit more experience or, you know, super strong sense of, of, of public ego. It was like, Hey, let's just figure out a way to finish as a five person team. because it's five out five back. And if you go five out four back, you didn't finish, yes. you're disqualified. And so we had to keep five of us together alive and if not thriving, surviving and to get to the finish line. And it was super, super difficult. And we, we did finish mm -hmm. and we did, Um, end up doing, I think, very well as a result. Now, and we were roasted. <laughs> we were, we were, it, it took us, it was, I can't remember now, I want to say 11 days or 12 days because that was so long ago. And, and in context is I've done over 100 multi-day races now in my career. So things where at least you see one sunset and one sunrise in a given race. Um, about 24, 25 of those have been expedition races. So 20, you know, anything that's five to 12 days long or longer, or what I'd call expedition length races. So I've spent literally hundreds, almost two total, you know, cumulative years racing <laughs> through night and day with team members or often solo, or in some cases solo. Um, so I've got to have some context for that. But that was my very first multi-day Uh, event and it was almost a dozen days and so it was, it was hard and so we had a lot of reality checks along the way and at one point you know i'm sure each of us probably wanted to stick a stick an ice pick in each other's kneecaps you know out of frustration and irritation with each other because uh, inevitably those things happened but we were all unified by the common goal to complete it to finish it together and to find the pleasure and the, the satisfaction and the joy of doing so mm -hmm. the part of your question which is and here's here's the irony and something you know i need i needed to pay attention to was immediately on completion actually just before finishing after almost 12 days of, of struggling and suffering and and having successes along the way clearly um, we about five hours four hours out from the finish i felt that visceral desire for all of us felt it to want to slow down to not want to finish yeah. Yeah, enjoy it. Yeah. And to, because suddenly what that meant was it was going to be the end. This, you know, a finish line was the literal finish line, but it was also going to be the end line of some really rich experiences in training, in preparing, in planning, in addition to the event itself. So 
there's going to, we, we anticipated there's going to be a, some satisfaction from finishing and we knew it was really hard. And we knew that, that, you know, teams have been blowing out left and right. And that the, the finishing rate, I can't remember now what it was, is probably a 25% finishing rate, completion rate for the event. Um, out of 55 teams or 65 teams, something like that, I think I don't know, 15 or 17 finished, um, maybe out of 60 teams, something like that. So uh, it was, it was a really low finishing rate. And so, we felt we were feeling satisfied by that. But we also recognize that this is going to be the culmination of a lot of really, really rich, wonderful experiences and that the finish line would end all that. And it did. And it, what it created then afterwards was this vacuum. And I'm sure you experienced this, or likely you experienced this, Surreal, with some of the things you've done is, is what I call at the time post-eco depression syndrome. We can call it post-event depression syndrome or the dreaded PEDS it's after you finish something you spent so much time preparing for and planning for and sharing with others mm-hmm. that suddenly it leaves us on completion, whether through success or failure, however that's measured at the time, uh, it leaves a tremendous vacuum. And then the, in which then all and, and nature abhors a vacuum and wants to fill it with something. Right, right. Then comes the, des- a little bit the of- desire to plan the next thing, exactly. right? to do it again, to do something else. That, you know, that's, um, that's the thing. Usually you finish something you really love. It doesn't matter how hard it was, but those last four hours are like embers that a prehistoric man would keep for starting a new fire. And it actually usually does it. Okay, what's next? What, what could be... Yeah giving me as much or more satisfaction than what I currently had. And that's something that is really important. And I want to point it in, in the podcast that uh, you, if you ask me, how do you do to, to cross an ocean in a kayak? It's not, you don't start in the morning doing this. I started Tamalpais at Adriger Canoe Club by doing an eight mile race. And yeah. then you had that, I called it the such a blast feeling at the end of the race where you're mm-hmm. like, Oh my God, this was amazing. I want to do it again. And it's like when you bungee jump or I've never bungee jump or jump from a plane, be like, I don't know. I'm scared. I'm scared. I'm scared. You jump and you're so scared. You get to the ground. I want to do it again. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yep. And, and you have to pay attention to that. You can't ignore that. There, there are times where you go, Hey, I don't want to do that. That was really cool. I don't want to do that again. Yes. Jack, you know, done, but paying attention to that desire and that, and, and inevitably you see it in people it's within days or hours or whatever it may be, or minutes, um, they're already planning for how they could do, in, in spite of all the complaining and whining that we all go through and the, oh my gosh, this really sucks. And I really suffered badly. I'm like I could do this better. I could do it faster. I could do it you know, more smoothly. I could do these things. That's a human nature and an inclination to want to then improve upon and to experience again. And I think um, some people have called it, I, I think some people see that as being, the desire to go do more of this is being destructive behavior. Like, ah, oh, you know, you're going to put yourself at risk to do these things again. Like, you know what? That's just, that's sort of my lifeblood. That's what, right. that's my spirit. That's what puts wind under my sails or under my wings. And, and it is important, I think, to recognize that that, that, that change, that can change over time and through life and why we can't just, you know, I couldn't use the same in evaluating whether I wanted to do that very first eco challenge. And as I mentioned, I've done a, a, Two, over two dozen additional races, um, expedition length races since. I've done over 100 multi day races since, sometimes with teams, sometimes as a tandem, sometimes just myself. Uh, but I, so I have to go back and go through that same pros and cons, the T chart process to decide it, does that work today for this event? 
for this thing I want to do moving forward. Because I think it is important for us to also put those in the context of at what time in our life are we having these experiences? Right. And when I look at, so, and I'll riff a little bit, but when I look at other, when I plan for events, when I plan, an event can be, I want to go, you know, with my, with my life partner, my wife now, I want to go experience Central America. How do we want to do it? And so then I've got, a, I've got six primary decision criteria that I look through uh, that help me and that helps inform if I want to do this trip and how I want to do this trip. It's, you know, it starts with what do I want to do? What do I want to see? How do I want to see it? With, you know, what sort of mode of transportation would give me best access to see it? If I'm going through the deserts of, of Morocco, is it on a, the back of a camel? Or, you know, if I'm traversing through Mongolia in an old Russian Jeep, you know, that's the best way to kind of get in there or take a motorcycle down through Central America. Or in this case, with my wife, we did a long trip through Central America through 27 countries with an F3 Ford F350 pickup truck, a 1966 Airstream, a boy, a girl, a small dog, 27 border crossings, seven countries, and we went till the road literally ended at the Darien Gap in Colombia, or at the northern end of Colombia and uh, Panama. <laughs> and we made a U-turn and came back. So that's a very that's very different than doing a start line, finish line, stopwatch, adventure race, eco challenge, GER, TV, and all the other kinds of stuff. But I used some of the same criteria when I was assessing. Is this something? You know, what would this? Uh, is this something I want to do? And when I want to do it? And who do I want to? With whom do I want to share it? And how do I want to see it? And at this time in my life, is this something I'm ready for? Because mm-hmm. I think that's important. And we can then cast forward. We can say, okay five years, 10 years from now, do I envision that this will have been made a major impact on me? Mm-hmm. And sometimes desirable and sometimes undesirable. Uh, but, uh, and those are kind of peripheral decisions. But we, yeah, I think, and so I've got my own models and frameworks for how I assess looking forward into planning an event or an experience or an adventure, whether it's for a weekend or whether it's for several months, you know, or four months, like in through Central America. Um, and then I also cast back often in through that same framework and say, did I get what I wanted? Did I get what I thought I was going to get? And what right. didn't I experience or what, what wasn't I anticipating that I experienced? Um, and how did this move and shape and shake me in my life? And so those are things I think it's important for us also to decide, but recognizing that the time does matter, the, the time in our lives, and if we're open and right for an experience matters. What would you say is the, the success, successful percentage of once you decided, I really want to do this, that you made it happen? 96%. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, you just... Super, super high. It's, <laughs> and and, that's, and that's, that's not giving myself accolades just because, you know, I spent... And it wasn't because I was looking for easy things to do. It's because I felt like it's... Uh, you know, great, great momentum. It's like kicking a rock off the side of a hill. <laughs> once it, you know, when sitting there, there's a lot of inertia. When you can, right? When you can get it off the side of the hill, a rock can pick up a lot of inertia and gain momentum along the way and knock a lot of things along the way too. So it's, um, and and I'll say, you know, for us, for the adventure racing world, and I say us because I also stuck. I, I had great allegiance. I and I believe a lot in longevity and durability and loyalty with teammates for people with whom you want to do certain things. Um, and so I raced with some of those same teams, team members for many years. Sometimes, you know, people faulted me for that. Usually I got accolades for it because it was, it's also what helped, um, 
create high finishing rates for us. We had a disproportionate high percentage of finishes of those really, really yeah. difficult races. So, but we had some failures and, you know, we lost a couple team members here and there, but um, it wasn't for lack of, for lack of effort or trying or preparation or those things, inevitably something's happened. And when you take risks, you will, there will be failure. And, but I've, I have been fortunate to have a disproportionate high percentage of success. So, I mean, this is, this is, Amazing. I guess that makes for a very satisfactory feeling. Now, what would be your advice to somebody who has been willing to do something, like really willing to do, and for various reasons, maybe the what they're trying to do is inachievable. Like, I want to be Michael Jordan. Okay, so is it the the the, the wrong target or other reasons? What would be your advice to them to, you know, make it successful? Maybe start small and grow from there. Or? Yeah, it's, I don't know how to, I'm not sure how to bottle or can that answer, Surreal, but it's a, it's a tremendous one. It's the, I think first is, it's going back to the, the gut and the inspiration, right? The idea, the, the thing. Really? I've got to, what if you don't feel it? Can, I've got to, how can you, if you, then don't, yeah, if, if you don't feel it, then don't do it. I, I, I'm first to set a uh, foundation. I don't believe, and, and poo poo on me, but I don't believe anybody can do something just because they want to do it. I, mm. I, I believe tremendously in human potential. Mm. I also agree. I also believe that it needs to be channeled to ways in which it can be liberated and expressed and experienced in a way uh, uh, that work for somebody. But just because somebody wants to be Michael Jordan yeah. doesn't mean they can be Michael Jordan or be, you know, an NBA star, whatever it is. If only I had a 40 inch sleep and <laughs> you could do all these tremendous things, I could be a great basketball player. Well, you don't. So, you know, how about finding something else that may suit you? But I think the, the kernel, the seed, the, you know, the, 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 the pop, you know, the thing that's going to become the popcorn, whatever we want to, whatever metaphor we want to use, the, um, it had it ha yeah there first does have to be that sense of inspiration and i i use for myself a three time rule which is if something recycles if it comes back up in my head or my heart or through specific experiences three times i've got to pay attention to it yes now, i may consciously then choose to ignore it or i may consciously choose to pursue it but i'm going to do it with conscious yeah. choice no it's listen to your inner voice some people can't yep don't don't hear it like they have a, a that, that spark but they don't feel it but i think everybody has whether you want to photograph butterflies or you want to to do whatever everybody has it and and i think living a life exciting is pursuing those so your advice is listen to your voice and when it tells you three times listen to it three times yeah Yeah, and and then you can choose to you can choose to ignore it, but then but then know that you chose to leave it behind without regret and without other things. Just say, you know what, I, I, I'm going to leave that behind. And sometimes those can be just, you know, a three time rule can be crossing paths with somebody three times before you finally say, you know what, I'm going to introduce myself because for whatever reason we came across each other, and I want to know more about you. Or it's a hey, this thing, and I felt inspired by this several times now. I can't I can't ignore this anymore let alone if it becomes five or six times, right? Um, but I've got to go poke around the edges and I've got to, I've got to explore it. And, and so I'm going to go back real quick to my, to sort of that axioms of adventuring, which is the first has got to be worth, anything worth doing is worth having fun doing. Second is you don't have to know how to do it in order to begin it. So if it comes up three times, then start it. 
poke around the edges, explore it, learn it like you did when you said, I want to go do a, a race with, with Cam paddling. Uh, and then it's nothing works without lubrication <laughs> is axiom number three. And, and that, and lubrication shows up in different ways, right? Whether it's mechanical friction, whatever it is, sometimes it's social lubrication, but sometimes like, what is it that helps keep, keep me inspired to keep wanting to do something? What kind of an, you know, additional experiences can I have along the way that keeps, keeps me moving forward? So lubrication shows up in different ways. And the fourth is if in doubt of any of the above, refer back to one, which is anything worth doing is worth having some fun doing. And, yeah. But I think what, what I learned also years later, after we some friends and I had developed these axioms of adventuring, was that there's a precept, there's a foundational axiom that I recognize, and through my own sort of a, a couple of difficult learning lessons, you have to first show up. Mm-hmm. In order to have an adventure, you got to show up. In order to really experience something, explore something, you got to show up. And so people get all kinds of busy thinking about, talking about, expressing, whatever, but they never really show up physically or emotionally or intellectually. And so therefore, it just never happens. Or if it does, it, it happens with all kinds of opportunity for failure. If you're going to do it, pay attention to the guts, go to the gut, go through the intellectual processes, the, the T-chart, come back, revisit the gut. And if you're going to do it, then show up but don't let not knowing how to do it keep you from beginning it. I love it. Uh, there's some gold nuggets in, in all these these ideas, and I think I wouldn't uh, be able to conclude it better than you just did. So with that, I want to thank you so much, David. Thank you for joining us, and uh, we'll have you again on the podcast. It's real. Thank you. Thank you. appreciate that. And... Uh... And it's interesting for me, and when you, people ask questions like you do, like you have, which not many people do, um, it's an important time to also sit back and reflect on the things that are most important for me. So thank you for letting me share that with you. Okay. Thank you, David. Um, thank you, everyone, for listening. This was the podcast number one of I Really Want to Do This. I'm your host, Cyril. And remember, life is an adventure. David. Thank you, buddy. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Big hug to you, my friend. All right, Cyril. I'll talk to you. Yeah, hug to you as well. Thank you. Bye.